Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes, our news show where we talk about the recent headlines in the news, why they matter from our vantage point in tech. I'm Sonal, and this is episode number 13, which is very symbolic given it's Halloween week here in the United States. And this week, we're covering two very interesting headlines. One is the OK Boomer meme. And that's not necessarily news. So we'll get to why we think that is news. And then the other news item is about online fraud happening and and potential money laundering happening in gaming transactions and trades and what's hype, what's real there. But first, let me quickly summarize the news before I introduce our A6NZ experts. So here's the news. The New York Times recently shared a piece written by the wonderful Taylor Lorenz about the OK Boomer meme. And she basically shared how thousands and thousands of teens are responding through video remixes, art projects, photos, even carving into pumpkins because it's Halloween week, saying OK Boomer, a line that is perfectly blocked but cutting, as Taylor describes it. And what they're reacting to is that there was a viral video clip on TikTok posted with the caption, Mom, can you pick me up? The old art teacher is going at it again. And it featured an older man in a baseball cap saying, The millennials in Generation Z have the Peter Pan syndrome. They don't ever want to grow up. And then he goes on to a bit of a rant about how they think their ideals will somehow translate into adulthood, etc. So anyway, that's what's going on. That alone, however, is not news. What is news is that the people reacting to this meme have started creating and selling merchandise from custom t-shirts to phone cases to stickers to bedsheets and more. And they're basically monetizing their protests in a system that they think is rigged. To quote the New York Times article, they're upset because they believe that everybody in Gen Z is affected by the choices of the boomers that they made and are still making, and that those choices are, quote, hurting us and our future. And they're really frustrated by it. So that's a summary. Now let me introduce our A6 and Z experts, general partner Connie Chan and Darcy Kulikan, also a partner on the A6 and Z consumer team. I invited you guys on because this touches on so many things from this idea of memes to merchandise, to TikTok video, to the future of social. Why don't we talk about what's going on here? Well, I mean, I think it's I think it's huge news, especially if you think it's a function of a bunch of things. One, like people underestimate how entrepreneurial Gen Z is in general. I know people in high school, they make slime and they sell it at school and they make money and they buy sneakers. And, and there's like this huge criticism from their parents' generation saying like, oh, these kids are buying these expensive things and they don't realize these kids are paying for it themselves. Well, they also, the rant is that, oh, these kids think their ideals will somehow translate into adulthood, but that is actually a very adult thing to be able to it sell is, something and is. make money. I also think it's interesting like how this is just one reflection of how memes can be monetized. Like memes are really just short bursts of culture, right? And now you're seeing how those memes can turn into clothing. It can turn into a tons of sales for songs and music labels, right? Um, and artists. And so memes are actually great ways for brands to even think about how to tell their authentic story or how to get in front of customers in a unique way. There's also this other point, which is this idea that traditionally social media, whether like you had a YouTube channel or something like that, it was monetized through ads, but now it's monetizing through different ways. And it's the idea of actually like generating these kind of, you know, social phenomena type things and then monetizing it through merch is like a very Gen Z type of yeah. thing that's happening. I actually want to probe a little bit on this whole meme to merch aspect of it. So what's kind of interesting here is someone quoted saying that they're monetizing the boomer back backlash as their own little form of protest against a system they feel is rigged. Yeah. So I think that's kind of funny that they're doing it in that way and also kind of great that they're making money off of it. 
I guess the question I have for you, Connie, because you especially observe these trends from China and you've talked a lot about these bursts of culture. Like you've talked a lot about TikTok in particular. Yeah, yeah. As, and that is actually where this meme originated and started going viral. The original user, Lin Riz, yeah, yeah. posted this video and that has sort of led to the responses. And you have this sort of challenge culture and discussion happening on TikTok. Yeah, so I think TikTok definitely amplifies how quickly these things can spread because in TikTok, really great content wins. It doesn't matter if you were, like a famous influencer. It's less about how many followers you have. If you have a meme that's truly organic and authentic, it can just spread like wildfire. And what's really cool, if you look at the Chinese version of TikTok in China, there's so much e-commerce and transactions happening already around these memes or around these short videos. Another really cool trend that this is related to is how live streamers in Asia are already using video to one, gauge how much demand there is for a product and two, to quite frankly sell it, right? There's so many examples where the live streamer will go onto video and show maybe a very small number of SKUs, like just a handful of shirts, a handful of sweaters, whatever it is. And then they get like real-time feedback based off the comments that they get from people who watched it on what colors they want. Like, should you change the design here or there? And then from that, they can perfect the product, know exactly how much demand is out there, and then produce the right amount of product to ship out to their buyers. So two, two things I want to riff off there. One is just the idea of transactions and commerce and merch becoming so much more ingrained in social. And I think that is some, that, that's kind of like an evolution that we're seeing. You know, V1 of the social networks were all kind of ad-based. Then you evolved to like this like quasi-ad based things where it's like sponsored ads and people holding like protein powders and things like that. Yeah. And now you're seeing this evolve and now you have direct transactions, whether they're like on platform or off off platform. You actually just see monetization is happening in a totally different way. And I think you're gonna continue to see that evolve. And you know, whether it's continues with deeper and deeper integration of merch and products and CPG and everything like that, whether you actually move to like other ways of of monetizing social. So whether it's you pay for QA or you paid memberships within platforms or anything else like that, you're just seeing the monetization models evolve. The monetization models the platforms make available then drive the content and influence the content that people are able to produce. So something like OK Boomer maybe might not have gotten as big or as strong or as expansive if they didn't have this monetization avenue available to them. What's also really cool, I think, about shifting to merchandise is it takes away the popularity contest that exists in social media because it's no longer just about how many followers you have to how much value your ad is worth, right? If you create a really great, cool piece of merchandise and it can go viral, whether it's through TikTok or Instagram or whatever it is, and if it just spreads quickly, you can still make a lot of money, right? So when you switch into merchandise versus monetizing fame, it goes, it takes away from the old popularity contest, which really existed in Instagram. It authentically comes and then it resonates. And I think that means it's tapped into something like deeply culturally important. Right. And I think that's like usually a pretty good indicator that like something has entered the zeitgeist. And then once it's entered the zeitgeist, I'm like, I don't know exactly what OK Boomer represents. Maybe it's this like generational divide. Maybe it's this like feeling that the deck is stacked against Gen Z. I don't know exactly what. But the fact that this thing has become this cultural phenomenon means that it's probably some deeply held kind of emotional thing. And that means that there's likely a lot more that's going to be built on top of that. Right. And it's really up to the social platforms to create the tools to enable these things yeah. to happen yeah. with lower friction. If you look at the Chinese version of TikTok, which is called Douyin in China, um, the commerce is already all inside the app. So after the video plays, it plays again. And in the second loop, you have a button that pops up that you can click and go complete the purchase all inside the app. And I think what this also represents is that in the future, social media platforms are going to have to close the loop on platform. Right. Because what's happening right now is that these users are virally responding on TikTok 
They're also responding on Instagram. Some of these meme pages are showing up on Instagram, but then they're also, they're posting their, their products on sites like Bonfire, where one of the people made a custom t-shirt that they sold for like $10,000, probably Mm -hmm. way more by now. The point is that that's not all happening on a single platform. But I think the thing that's really interesting is that merch is oftentimes like the first layer of it. But once something hits the zeitgeist, like OK Boomer, and OK Boomer is just like the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Once that gets exposed, now you're going to see more and more things start to build on top of that, whether that's products, whether that's personalities, whether that's other kind of like platforms, whatever that is, all of these other layers are now going to start to get built on top of. So what I'm hearing from you guys is that what we might dismiss as a fun, frivolous, silly meme, oh, these teens doing crazy things, is actually an indication of a broader thing that's going on that's playing out, but generationally in the zeitgeist that indicates something that's coming down the pike, that might be an indicator of companies, apps, layers being built. I'm also hearing that some of this has already happened in China. And so what we see unbundled here, where we have this meme originate on TikTok in the U.S., responses happening on sites where some of these this merchandise, the custom t-shirts are being sold and made. So this thing that we see as like three or four disparate things can actually be connected into a larger picture for what the future of social and commerce could potentially look like. Another thing that, that's interesting that I think is cool here, that's like, if you look at OK Boomer, it's kind of this remix culture, right? It's this idea that one person has one thing and then it gets remixed a million different times. It's actually my favorite and remix thing about is it. such TikTok culture. It's TikTok culture, exactly. TikTok culture it's is TikTok remix culture. TikTok culture is remixing. If you actually back it all up, though, and like I kind of think of YouTube as like the Craigslist of video, uh-huh. Remix was such a big part of like 2009, 2008 YouTube, right? Yeah. And TikTok has just made it easier. But it's always existed within video. It's always ex- existed within social. Yeah. It's actually indicative of the fact that YouTube became more professionalized, like content somehow. Because when I remember the early days of Web 2.0, remember yeah. that phrase, yeah, yeah, yeah. Web 2.0, social yeah, yeah. before yeah. social was a thing. It was all about remix, remash, mashups. Mashups, is what exactly, they called it. Totally. Exactly, yeah, yeah. it was mashups. Yeah, mashups. And it's funny because you're right. That kind of went away. Yeah. Now it's come back. You can think of like, okay, Boomer is like the protest song, right? And it's better that it's like a meme because Gen Z actually moves in memes rather than the Boomer generation probably would. Well, right? well like, I was going to say they song. actually also did do an actual protest song. They remixed right. an existing song and they're right. actually selling that on right. Spotify exactly. and apparently and that's splitting like, their revenue. That's but exactly yes. the way that Gen Z would like tend to have one of these kind of like protest movements is, is through a meme and through like a remix, that kind of like remix culture, basically. And short video really lowers the barrier for someone to create a remix. Right. You're just iterating. You're, just, you're, you're changing one small piece of it. Yeah. Um, and that just allows, it allows so many more people to do it. Yeah. And the yeah. creativity just blossoms. That's great. So bottom line it for me, you guys, what's our big takeaway from the OK Boomer meme and meaning of it all? I mean, it's proof points that social media platforms really need to add all the transaction and commerce layer in their ASAP because their users are just asking for it. But I also think it reflects how the speed at which culture changes and the speed at which culture is reflected in physical goods is accelerating. And that's also tying to, again, why memes are moving to merchandise quicker and why that needs to be supported by a lot of these social media platforms. The extension of that bottom line is that once they do, the content that will get created will evolve. And I think that will open up a whole new layer of creativity um, on on the creator side by having these kind of heavier platforms with more transactions and the ability to do merch. That's great because one of my favorite lines from the article is that in the end, Boomer is just a state of mind. So to me, (laughs) this is great because it just means that our future, regardless of your age, is one in which we can all basically be okay Boomer to the world. I love this future of social. Thank you guys for joining this week's segment. Thanks. Thank you. Now, the next segment this week covers news that was published in Vice. The headline was, 
that, quote, nearly all counter-strike microtransactions are being used for money laundering. Now, before everyone freaks out, let me actually break that down. So first of all, Counter-Strike Global Offense is an online multiplayer game. It's a first-person shooter game. It's published by Valve. They distribute on Steam, et cetera. So anyway, the game involves non-terrorists versus terrorists. And one of the key economies in this game, and this is why this is so interesting, is that people used to be able to trade container keys. So basically in the game, you have these cases that contain weapons and upgrades and auxiliary items you want in the game. And you have to buy keys to open those containers. And so now players will no longer be able to trade those container keys between accounts because apparently worldwide fraud networks have recently shifted to using these microtransactions to liquidate their gains. So at this point, nearly all key purchases that end up being traded or sold on the marketplace are believed to be fraud sourced. So I'm going to introduce our A6NZ expert, Joel De La Garza, former CSO, chief security officer, and heads up A6NZ's security operating function. You're a regular, unfortunately, on this show. <laughs> Welcome back. Can you help us demystify like the hype from the reality on this news? Yeah. I think that the headline kind of grabs you with uh, the claim that there's this money laundering conspiracy in ring and immediately you focus in on thinking that perhaps it's some international terrorist organization or there's some kind of big organized criminal syndicate that's operating behind this. But I think actually what's happening here is a problem that's been around for a very, very long time. And it goes back to kind of the beginning of e-commerce and online sort of activity. From the very beginning, credit card databases were compromised. I think probably... Two days after the first online store started taking credit cards, people started stealing credit cards and selling them. And so the challenge that a lot of the bad guys have always faced is that the credit card companies and most online retailers have been very good about not letting you go directly from a credit card to cash. And that's sort of the, the, the business problem that the fraudsters face, which is that if you're a fraudster and you're out there collecting credit card numbers, you actually build up a sizable amount of working valid credit card numbers with all the information you need to use them. The challenge is actually using them. Why is that so challenging? If I were a fraudster, I would just go and say, hey, I want to buy a car. I'm going to buy a car and that's that. I'm going to buy a fancy dress and that's that. And I move on. Because for most established marketplaces, you encounter this usually day one when you turn on your business and they've solved that. So you can't like just go buy a car and a credit card. Ah, you mean uh, the companies have put protections in place to make absolutely. sure that people can't just do this. Like this is a known behavioral pattern for retail. Like people know how to deal with this. You know, and it even got so bad that people were going after like frequent flyer mile accounts. So I would get your your United account, I would liquidate your points, I would get some merchandise, I'd have the merchandise delivered and then I'd sell it or I'd get gift cards, right? Um, and so this is a known, a known sort of activity. And apparently what it looks like happened is that, you know, the folks making this game have implemented their own marketplace that allows the ability for people to transact. Uh, they may not have previously thought about fraud as one of those potential use cases. They might not have put the appropriate systems in place. Right. And so you're building this sort of black market economy yeah. that's trading in these assets. Now, the issue is, um, and this has always been sort of one of those signs that your platform's becoming successful, when you get to an appropriate size and scale and you're supporting enough e-commerce transactions that the fraudsters can move into your platform, start to open accounts. Maybe you're not doing all the things that you should be doing to engage in e-commerce. They can very quickly find ways to use a lot of cards, monetize very quickly yes. and cash out. 
So, so basically, they build an infrastructure that allows them to take advantage of a lot of microtransactions, build sort of a false economy, and then find a way to cash out very quickly. I mean, the whole point of gaming is to be able to have this fun and interaction. Mm-hmm. So some of it might have been intentionally frictionless without mm-hmm. those layers in place in order for to enable these kinds of trades and, and transactions to happen. Well, and one of the things, too, is that when you deal with microtransactions, the risk management folks tend to think about those as it's a small amount. It's not a huge issue. Like we can eat a little bit of fraud here because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, but always, everybody always underestimates the capabilities of your your advanced fraudster. I'm sure that some of these fraudsters were gamers. They saw this thing come on and they, they had a great idea and they built some sort of automation that gave them the ability to very quickly utilize stolen credit cards, buy these virtual merchandise, virtual items, and then trade amongst themselves and then have some kind of a cash out. So what I don't know, though, is what is the scope of this problem precisely because it's microtransaction? Is it like a big problem, a small problem? From the article as it was published, we don't really know how big of a problem this is. You know, it could be a $10,000 problem. It could be a million dollar problem. It could be a $10 million problem. The company didn't reveal it in their post. We don't know. Correct. I mean, I'll say for me, one of the big takeaways is we did a podcast recently with Kevin Chu of Forte and, and Chris Dixon. And one of the things we talked about was gaming economies and the importance and need for the evolution of gaming economies. To me, what this shows, in this case, illegitimate, it started off legitimate though, mm-hmm. the trading, is that it's there's a need and an appetite for people to, to transact with each other. And so I often wonder to myself if something like crypto would actually bring a more auditable way to track these things and actually solve these problems, in particular when it comes to such microtransactions. But what I'm hearing from you is that this problem of fraud rings is as old as time, (laughs) and they're just going to keep going to new pastures. As long as there's stuff to steal, there's going to be thieves. Okay, so bottom line it for me, Joel, how should we think about this then? So bottom line, from a security community perspective, like everyone who's worked in this business has dealt with this problem in some form or another. And so there's always just this kind of like morbid curiosity that's popping up now in in e-gaming, right? I think your average consumer doesn't need to be too concerned about this. You know, your credit card companies are really good about making users whole if their card gets defrauded. Uh, They're probably going to have some very uncomfortable conversations with Valve and how they implemented their systems. Uh, A lot of these platform providers and marketplaces are are learning some very hard and possibly very expensive lessons, but they're going to learn the lessons and they're going to find ways to do this in a secure fashion. Thank you for joining the segment of 16 Minutes, Thank you. My pleasure.